Good morning. Our central text is Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you are already doing the math. We had just one verse, so you're thinking, hey, maybe 15 minutes from now we'll be done. Well, <laughs> uh, no such luck. Uh, if you are new here, I feel like I'm new here because <laughs> I've been out for a couple weeks, but we've been over the summer looking at what's really viewed as one of the best chapters in all of Scripture, Romans 8. A great comfort uh, for many, especially when you're suffering. Uh, and now what we come to here in this one verse is probably... The most quoted verse only of this chapter, but maybe in all of Scripture. It's one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, and probably is also the mis, most misinterpreted verse. And why is that? We as Christians uh, here in the West, one of the subtle temptations when it comes to a relationship with God is that we're tempted to believe that the goodness of God is in direct correlation to the goodness of our life circumstances. And so subsequently, it's a direct correlation. If my life's going well, I really believe God is good. And so when we come to Romans 8.28, what we tend to think is, is I know what it's saying. I've had a couple bad things happen. I know what happened. I didn't get the house that we put an offer on. Romans 8.28 is telling me a better house is on the way. I didn't get the job I wanted. A better house, is, a better job is coming. In fact, when I was going through a painful breakup in college, somebody... <laughs> quoted this verse to me and said, you know that girl just broke up with you? She's a chicken dinner. God's got a steak dinner for you in the future. And so that I have a place to stay tonight. Uh, indeed, my wife is a steak dinner compared to that chicken, chicken dinner I once had who was not a winner. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> you know, uh, that's not what Paul's saying here. If you know any, one of the things that we have to understand is Romans 8 was written to people whose lives were falling apart. The bottom had really fallen out. Their lives had gotten worse as they became a Christian. Paul is writing to suffering people. And if you've ever walked with somebody who's really suffering, the last thing you want to do is show up and give a little silver lining platitude from a Hallmark card. That's not what Paul's doing here. One of the presuppositions of Romans 8 is that bad things happen. That's that, to understand it, Romans 8.28 Bad things happen. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to drill into us, into our hearts, into the very foundations of our hearts, something that if we actually really believe and we really took hold of, we could literally face anything that life throws us. And that is this, that God in his very essence is good. He's good. And he's not defined, his goodness is not defined by our circumstances, it's defined by who he is. And if we actually literally believe that, that everything that we face in this life is governed by the fact that he is good and is always making good things for us, we can face that. But the challenge is, is I believe that intellectually. I'm here preaching it. It's one of the hardest things to believe and when things are really hard. How do we do that? Three things. What we must know. What must we know more than anything else when we suffer? And then two, the goodness of God in all things. What does that actually mean? And then the gospel according to Romans 8.28. So what do we need to know? What does it mean that God takes these bad things for our good? 
And lastly, what is the gospel according to it? So can we just take a moment to pray? I know a lot of people are getting back into their seats. I want to, I know, especially if you're suffering, I really hope this is a help and encouragement. So Lord, I know in the summertime, we don't want to hear about suffering. And I know uh, all of us here, we just, we want the best, the best life we can possibly have. But you love us enough to tell us the truth about the world we are living in, but who you are. And so if we are suffering, if today the good news hasn't come or things ha- we don't understand, we are not alone in that. We join with millions and millions of people who preceded us and across the world who don't know why or what, but are looking for who you are in the fire. And I pray that that's what we'd find. So please grab our attention, help our hearts. Please drill this into our hearts. Help us to believe this. In your name we pray, amen. What kind of God do you have after death? What kind of God do you have? What kind of view of God do you have after death? This is a question that a young widowed mother asked another family after they had lost a child. Uh, this widowed mother was holding her 10-month-old. And uh, this, is, this is a girl who grew up and, and the daughter of missionaries uh, in a world where it was kind of Christian triumphalism that everything that she believed about God was always, it was always positive. Every, everything always going to be for the good. But the night before her husband died, she, along with others, sang this song. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. And about 12 hours later, her husband and others were brutally speared to death. By the people, they had left everything to, to reach. Uh, this young widow, she was lonely, she was depressed, she was distraught, and she's asking in the wake of all of this, and what I think about God, can I really trust him? Can I trust him? Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot, you know, when she was a seminary professor, a uh, great author, uh, but probably more than anything else, great speaker, is she's the go-to resource If you've ever suffered or know anything about Elizabeth Elliot, she's the person. And it's almost hard to imagine that Elizabeth Elliot really struggled with doubts and depression. Because part of that is because she walked through the fire. And when she came out on the other side, she was like a refined piece of gold. But Elizabeth Elliot, I mean, this wasn't weeks. (laughs) This wasn't months. This was years and years of asking the question, while she's in the fire. If you've ever really suffered, you know the first thing that happens, you know what it feels like? It feels like someone just turned the lights off and you're just scrambling in the dark, looking for the light switch and you can't find it. My power's gone off every Saturday night the last two weeks, so I'm kind of doing that right now. But do you know what that light is when you really are suffering? You want to flip on a light, and that light is, can you explain to me what's happening to me right now? Why is this happening? What good is, is coming from this? And that's what we want. We want an explanation. Does anyone remember, uh, remember the movie Patch Adams? Uh, in the late 90s, Robert Williams plays this doctor, Dr. Patch Adams, and he and his girlfriend served all these people, you know, and used all his skills and all his education to serve people. And then his wife was tragically killed. By, I mean, excuse me, his girlfriend was tragically killed by one of the people they came to serve. And there's a scene when he's, 
He's literally just standing over the edge of a cliff, and frankly, he's thinking about ending it all. And he says this to God. He's talking to God, and he says, tell me what you're doing. All right, well, let's look at the logic. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. Maybe you should have just had a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion. <laughs> and then he just walks away. He says, you know what? You're not even worth it. Now, as he walks away, does anybody remember what happens next? He walks away, and all of a sudden, there's a little butterfly on a twig, and it's flapping its wings. And all of a sudden, the butterfly takes the flight, and all of a sudden, sentimental music starts playing. <laughs> and the butterfly flies off into the sky, and all of a sudden, you're led to believe as you're watching this, everything's going to be okay now. Paul is saying, my God, no. You're going to need way more than a butterfly to face the weight of suffering. We must find. Paul is writing and saying, in order to face suffering, you know what you have to find? You need to find the one who's there with you in the fire. And that's what Elizabeth Elliot said. I want to read this to you. I'm going to read it slowly so you get it. She said, there will be those who can explain to you God's purpose in all this suffering, they'll, quote, see what it's supposed to mean for you. Don't worry about them. They are blind. <laughs> no explanation this side of heaven can possibly cover the data. It's imponderable. It's inexplicable. And it's far, far beyond any explanations. You have to cast all that nonsense on the rock, too. There would be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? And although I've not found intellectual satisfaction, I have found peace. And the answer I say to you is not an explanation, but a person. It's Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Paul says in Romans 8.20, he says, and we know. And you know what he doesn't finish that statement with? He doesn't say, and we know why. Or we know what. But what he is saying is we know something. And what do we know? We know the one who entered a world of suffering, who was the one who did suffer. He's the suffering servant. And if you really have Jesus in the face of your suffering, do you know what you have? You are tethered to a rock. You truly have a peace that surpasses all understanding. But can I just be as brutally honest with you as possible? I agree with everything I have said up to this point. I agree with it intellectually. I would say that's true. I might even amen if I was in your shoes. <laughs> but I'm telling you, when the first thing that happens when suffering happens in my life, the first instinct in me is I, all of a sudden, I start looking for an explanation. As if I'm going to find all my comfort, all my peace, if I just understand more. Let me just break this down. So, I went away on vacation. I haven't taken hardly any of my vacations uh, this, this year. I went away for four days. And like is typical in all my life, I'm always behind on trends. I'm still listening to Tears for Fears, and I think they're amazing. But I finally got COVID. I'm three and a half years behind everybody else here. But I got COVID on my last day of vacation. I mean, I, the beach is everything to me. I am as, like mentally, physically, spiritually my best version of myself at the beach, Okay. Maybe we should just do church on the beach and you have the best pastor in the world. But, uh, and then it's all gone. <laughs> when I, I step out and I'm sick. And I start doing this. I start thinking, I, I know why this happened. God wants me to rest. Oh, I know why God wanted me to have you. He wanted me to have more time to work on Romans 828. 
oh, I know why. I was scheduled to have a colonoscopy, and now God has gotten me out of that. He works all things for my good, okay? <laughs> he does. I still have to do it in November, but uh, I'll be really grumpy then if you're wondering. <laughs> I'm not trying to make light of suffering. I know so many of you who have, and I've walked with you in it, and I've walked through my own. But if our understanding, hear me, if it's our understanding of why something happened gives us the peace and the ability to trust God, we're not actually trusting him. We're not. Do you know what we're trusting? We're trusting ourselves. We're trusting our own interpretation of events. Paul says we know. And until you and I are actually convinced that we know he's good apart from good or bad things happening in my life, we will never truly be able to really hold up when all that throw, life can throw at us, and he, it can throw some things at us. One of the other things I did on Philippians, I mean, one of the other things I did uh, on vacation, I mapped out our next series. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, I'm, I've never been more excited about a series coming up. We're going to study Philippians, uh, late summer and into the fall. And Philippians is written to suffering people. But what's amazing is Paul's writing the book of Philippians from prison. And if there's one word that shows up over and over and over again in the book of Philippians, what word would that be? Do you know what it is? Joy. You got it. You get to go to heaven now, too, because of that. And Jesus will help you get there. But, <laughs> and I'm tying I'm the series defiant. And I don't mean defiant in the sense of being defiant towards culture and rude and obstinate and doing this, that, and the other. I'm talking about a phrase came from G.K. Chesterton, defiant joy. The defiance that no matter what's going on in my world outwardly, and that there's an inner reality that is so true that it feels like I'm defying the world in this moment, a defiant humility, a defiant affection, defiant hope, defiant grace, defiant generosity, a defiant identity, a defiant contentment and plenty or in want. Defiant gratitude, defiant perseverance. And one of the reasons I think I'm so excited is because I think I live a good portion of my life just waiting for the right circumstance where I could finally say, I'm at peace. <laughs> my well-being is good. And I know I'm not alone in that. All of us come to this expecting that if, we really, if things just really get better, we will finally believe. But can I just say something? Adam, the Bible begins in the most perfect of all circumstances. Adam and Eve, Adam had no daddy wounds. He had no church baggage. He didn't have disappointment with God. He couldn't doubt the existence of God because God was walking in there. In the perfect of all circumstances, what happened? He didn't believe in the goodness of God, did he? And it ushered in all of this. I love reading biographies, and I devoured Tim Keller's biography recently written by Colin Hansen. And there's a little something that he had gave in a talk in 1991 that I never heard of. And it just pierced my heart when I read it. He says, you have to think of yourself as a dearly loved child of God, or you're really not able to live the Christian life at all. Unless you are governed by the idea that you are a dearly loved child, you can't live. You were built for family love. You were built for it. You were built for it. And until you see that's true of you, you can't live a life of imitation of God. You can't. Unless you are governed by the reality that he is good, you'll never be able to face all these things. Do you want to be buoyant? 
Do you want to be resilient? Do you want to have the kind of faith that you can endure with hope and hard things? That when things are really falling apart, that you're not self-pitying yourself, but you're actually very outward-facing, that you're joyful, even in the midst of real things that are sorrowful, that you can be content in seasons of want? Man, I want that. How do we do it? Well, let's take a look, and we'll go a little bit quicker uh, from here on out. Uh, someone in our church recently was in New York City just two weekends ago, and uh, she was in a cab, and uh, it was one of those rides where it's like, okay, I got a chatty cab driver here, and he's asking lots of questions, and he just point blank uh, asked her, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And brace, she begins, to, you know, you have to brace yourself in these moments. You don't know what's coming next. And sure enough, she just, she's like, yes, I am. And uh, next thing you know, he just starts peppering with all kinds of hard questions. Like, hey, in this city, there are so many kids who have everything they could ever want. And there are other kids who are walking in the streets barefoot. They have nothing. And they just suffer and suffer. How can your God allow that? What do you have to say? <laughs> okay. It's like, oh, man, I was just wanting a car ride. Uh, maybe I should take an Uber. Uh, but wow. And she did her best at that. I'm not going to get into all that. But she finally asked him, like, well, what is it that you believe? And he said, karma. It's the only logical explanation. The only logical explanation is that somebody has done something terrible in their last life to deserve everything bad that is happening to them today. God's off the hook. I don't know how that's supposed to make you feel better. Hey, I know it's really bad for you, but it's your fault, right? You did this to yourself. All faiths really have to struggle with this issue. If there's a God and he's good, what do we do when there's bad things happening? How do we address that? Now, I'm not going to spend all my time doing that because we've done that a couple weeks ago, but I want to read something from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if you're already asleep, you're going to just keep sleeping, but from here on out, I hope this can be helpful because I, I really do. This is the third chapter, and I want to read it slowly. He says, God, or they did, from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as ne thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Clear? Are we good? Thought so. Uh, right? Here's what they're saying, okay? I do think it's important. I'm going to leave it up. Here's what they're saying. The Westminster divines from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The Bible gives us a God that we can hold two things that we think are competing against one another, and that is this. Man's responsibility, man's free will, and God's divine sovereignty. We see it right in the beginning. God's sovereign. Adam and Eve have a responsibility and a will. And they chose to go their own way. And because of that, there's consequences, meaning that you and I live east of Eden. And everything falls apart in it. We weren't meant for a world like this. But that's the world we have as a consequence due to their sin. And our, you know, we have consequences of our sins in life too. But the reality is, the world is not how it's supposed to be, okay? And what's the word we see over and over again in Romans 8 before this is the word groan. Why? Because we groan. Creation groans. The Holy Spirit is groaning. Why? Because we live east of Eden. We were not meant for this world, okay? And so what that means is, is that bad things happen. And they do. And the Bible's honest about that. 
bad things happen. The promise is not that God is going to give us a life without bad things. That's not the promise of Romans 8, 28. I wish it was. Be an easier sell. But bad things do happen. But the promise is this. God, because he's always good, he will take everything that's bad in our lives and turn it for our good, which is primarily for our well-being and final salvation. No danger, no sword, no death that's coming next week will separate us from the love of Christ. When Jonathan Edwards is 18 years old, preached his first sermon, I just love to not like somebody like this, okay? First sermon, and it went viral before things went viral. And here were the three points. They were remembered today. And it was on Romans 8.20. It says, our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come. I'll say it again. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. And the best is yet to come down the day you're mine. (laughs) Folks at Stanford, let me break this down. Folks at Stanford recently, this last week, have developed a molecule. And they think it's going to be really potentially helpful for those facing cancer. And why is that? Because within every cancer cell are these molecules that are designed to reap destruction. But they've taken another molecule that they can attach to this molecule, they think. And what this molecule is going to do is going to take everything that the cancer wants to do for destruction and turn it in on itself and destroy the cancer cell. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. God will attach himself to all the broken things in our lives and in this world. And the promise is he will turn them in on themselves. The promise is not that bad things won't happen, nor is the promise that if bad things happen, better days will come. But rather, that he will make us more like Christ, so we will share in his suffering, and he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I know that's not what a lot of us wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that, hey, I know it's been 15 years of bad gator football. Cheer up, championships are on the way. You know, bookings are down for my wife's business. Cheer up, the Acousa Trail's coming. That's going to fix all of this, right? Praise God if things have gotten better in your life. And so often they do. And all we should do is just say, thank you. Thank you. But the reality is, we're not promised that. We're promised that he will be with us and that he is working in us a weight of glory. Let me tell a story as we begin to close. There was once a, an entitled brat that grew up in a world where this kid was probably destined to be a terrible despot, you know, just a terrible kid. He was a 12-born child uh, in his family, a very dysfunctional family. <laughs> father played favorites, and he was his father's favorite, this kid, he, his clothing was as flashy as his bratish little personality. And you know what? Who didn't like him? His brothers. You know what they tried to do? And you know what they did try to do? Kill him. That's how dysfunctional it was. And so you know what they did? They left this little brat where everything turned to gold. Now he's in a pit, dying. And he gets rescued. He gets rescued by a group of foreigners who come and take him out of the pit only to sell him into slavery. And he starts working, you know, and things get kind of turned around a little bit. And he gets the favor of his boss. And out of nowhere, he gets falsely accused of sexually assaulting his boss's wife. So like shoots and ladder, he fell right back to the bottom. And now this kid 
Where everything's just turned to gold, everything's turning the opposite, over and over and over again. And he's sitting in a prison cell, alone. There's no hope. His only hope has forgotten about him. He helped him, but he hasn't mentioned a thing about him on the outside. It's everything is falling apart until one night the king of the land has a weird, bizarre dream. And he has to reach out to someone. He, this guy's remembered again. And he comes to the king. He's able to, to interpret this dream. And he's about to tell him everything that's happened that famine is coming into your land. It's going to be really bad. And you need to really prepare for it. And because of that, this kid now rises to the second person in power. And he's able to bring prosperity to this country and prepare this country for famine. And when the famine came, the world came to this country because of this man. And somebody also came one day looking for some of that food. And you haven't figured out who I'm talking about. It's Joseph. And his brothers, who once tried to kill him, they fell down before him. And they just want to say, we're your servants. But what does he say to him? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph quoted Romans 8.28 before it existed. He does immense words. Bad things happen. Evil things happen. But because God is good, he's able to take this, this hopeless situation, and not only save millions, but what, what's the main part of the story? is his own personal redemption, isn't it? The kind of man Joseph became and what he would have been had he never suffering. One of the hardest things about suffering, but one of the blessings that can happen to suffering is sometimes, while we never know why, we can look back, can't we? And we can look back at our lives and we can look backwards and say, my goodness, what would I have become had it not been for this suffering? You don't know the things that are in us, the idols, the character flaws that are all in there until suffering, until we go through the fire. There's so many things that come out. So much compassion gets built into our lives. We move away from this insensitive person who's judgmental to now we're compassionate and merciful to people because we suffer. Because God is able to work the good. And the best is indeed yet to come. The promise is that there's a glory that will swallow up all our suffering. All our suffering. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way. Whatever is in the cup that God is offering to me, whether it be pain and sorrow and suffering and grief along with the many more joys, I'm willing to take it because I just trust him. And because I know that God wants for me is the very best. Faith never need ask, but what good did this do to me? Faith already knows that everything that happens, it fits into a pattern for good for those who love God. And so we can rest in the promise that God, he's fitting together a good many more things than any of our business. And we may never actually ever see what good it did or how a given trouble accomplishes really anything. But it is peace to leave it all with him, asking only that he do with me Anything he wants, anywhere, anytime, that God may be glorified. How do we do that? The only way is to look ahead at the truer and better Joseph.
There was another Joseph that came in the world, the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ. And he fell into a pit too, didn't he? By his own brothers and sisters, he came to rescue. He was speared to death. But those he came to save. And you read this. And I just want you to think through, just silently read it while I'm talking. At the foot of the cross, if you were right there in real time, 2,000 plus years ago, and you're watching this, it's all bad, isn't it? It's all bad at this moment. He's been betrayed. He's been abandoned by his closest followers. He's been falsely accused of something he's never done. Jesus Christ is sitting here before the world, and people are coming in and out of the city, and he's a public spectacle. They're looking at Jesus, and they're, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. And their people are just shaking their heads at him. They're, they're just mocking him. The people who sought for his execution, they didn't just let that happen and go on their merry way. They came to the cross to mock him while he's dying. He's being tortured unto death. And he's got people offering commentary beneath him, mocking him. Even the two guys dying next to him, the criminals, dying for something they actually did and he didn't. They took their shots at him over and over and over again. And what's Jesus doing? He's quoting scripture. He's praying. And he's getting seemingly no answer. There was no silver lining. Because look, the sun stopped shining. There was nothing to look at a silver lining cloud. There is no karma in Christianity because Jesus got what we deserved. But darkness is a metaphor here. It's a metaphor for judgment. That Jesus Christ came to judge sin and evil and to reconcile all things on earth. Because if you're sitting at the foot of the cross, you're thinking this is the worst thing that could possibly ever happen. If he's really the son of God, this is terrible. And yet if there's one thing that most clearly defines a particular moment in time that you can be so certain of his goodness to you, it's at that very moment, isn't it? In that very moment, when everything looks bad, Jesus Christ has attached himself to our bad, our sin. And for our sake, he made him to be no sin, who knew no sin. Standing at the foot of the cross as people are mocking him, wagging their heads in dismay, his disciples already hightailed it out of town. All you and I could ever do would wonder is what could good could come from this? And yet it's in that moment in human history where AD and BC got split in two. Because it was fitting that for he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Because we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Our greatest assurance is that our Lord does not waste our tears. Our greatest assurance is that we will never be abandoned in our suffering. Our greatest assurance because of the cross and because of the resurrection is the best is yet to come. It really is. But it's right there at the foot of the cross where we truly see that our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken away from us. 
and the best things are yet to come. If you believe that, even with faith, as small as a mustard seed, I want you now, I want the deacons to come on up, and Steve is going to lead us uh, in communion. Let me pray for us while they're making their way up. Lord, I know many of us in this room, we believe it. Emotionally, when things are hard, it's hard to believe, but even a faith as small as a mustard seed is enough. It is. And Lord, I pray that if we are in the fire right now, that the, the goodness of knowing you, that what we're promised that we can have, and the promise that you, nothing's ever lost in the kingdom and the best is yet to come, would sustain us. But Lord, help us to truly know if we're in the fire today, that peace that surpasses all human understanding of having you and your goodness with us. Feed us now, Lord, in your name, amen. Got it? Good? Romans 8, 28. What a wonderful promise. How do I know that that promise is for me? And yet the verse starts out with the two words, well, the second and the third word, we know. How do we know that that promise is for us? Well, the Lord wants us to have confidence that we belong to him and he has given us a little piece of bread and a little cup to cause us to be confident, to cause us to believe in what he did when he died for us. So that's what this is about. This is a time to build us up. This is a time to remind us that we are his. You're here, you take this bread, you take this cup, you do it in faith. It gives you confidence that he did this for you. Uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And what we're going to do is we're going to have you uh, come forward. Just no, no certain order here, but just come forward and come to these two different stations and then go back to your seat. We'll eat and drink together. Uh, if you're unable to come, uh, to come forward, just kind of raise your hand and we'll have someone come to you. Um, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then it wouldn't make sense for you to be involved in this. But, but think about what, what this does say, that Jesus is a Savior. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you gave us a visible sign that we can hold in our hand and we can put in our mouth to remind us that we're yours, to build our confidence, that we can know that Romans 8.28 is for us, not because of what we've done, but because of, of what you have done. Help us to eat this bread and to drink this cup in faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.